Welcome back to Breaking Brand, a five-part original series from Buffer. In this series, we're following the rise and complete 180 flip of one of New York City's most successful brand agencies, Gin Lane. I'm Ash Reed, Editorial Director for Buffer, the company that helps you build your brand and connect with your customers online. When I left you last episode, the Gin Lane team, led by Camille, Nick and Emmett, were winning massive contracts with Fortune 100 companies. They were at the top of their game, working with companies that had billions of dollars in market value. You know, it ended up not being really what we wanted. Yeah, we, we had people leaving, and it was because they were unhappy. The team was feeling burned out, but this wasn't an issue unique to Gin Lane. Many workers, especially millennials, have at some stage experienced some form of burnout. To learn more about the prevalence of this issue, we spoke to Erin Griffith, a New York Times journalist who covers startups and venture capital. Here's one of our producers, Max Miller, with Erin. Where are we right now? <laughs> okay, so we are in a kind of busy, slightly cavernous uh, coffee shop in Times Square, right across from Port Authority. Busy. Yeah. Busy is the key <laughs> idea. In January 2019, Erin was inspired to write a story on workplace culture partly based on what she observed of the people and companies she reports on in San Francisco. She typically focuses on tech startups, the kind of businesses that tend to embrace the idea of performative workaholism. And she explains to us how this performative workaholism has manifested in a number of different sectors. And what I mean by that is we're not just working a lot of hours or um, you know, really, really dedicated to our jobs, but we're actually um, like performing that as this sort of thing that we want to brag about and we're hustling and we are defining ourselves by our jobs and we are, you know, just sort of like wrapping our entire identity up in our ability to work. And I observed that and I thought it was kind of bizarre because, you know, what happens when you lose that job or what happens when you realize that you don't like the job that much or what happens when the job doesn't actually fulfill you, it's just a job. In the interview, Erin spoke about why the millennial workforce tends to lean towards this type of work culture. And she points to how many millennials graduated into a recession, which inspired the rise of the gig economy, where freelancing and short-term contracts are more prevalent. In the case of Gin Lane, the agency business model doesn't require 10 or 100x growth to succeed. But there's something to be said about the factors the company had in common with many of today's fast-growing startups. Things like the need to stand out in a competitive market, or stretching bandwidth to keep up with demand and going the extra mile for clients. In general, when it comes to the nature of startups, Erin talks about... There is this idea of, of blitzscaling in startup culture that has... Uh, it's Reid Hoffman wrote a book called Blitzscaling. It basically says that, like, you know, startups need to act like the house is on fire and that they need to, you know... They don't need to double their business, they need to 100x their business. And that requires just like scrambling and you know all-nighters and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that works for some companies, but I'm increasingly hearing from a lot of startups that they care more about like well-being and balance and they want their company their employees to be happy and healthy and work with, for them for a long time not burn out after two years um, and, and kind of be miserable and they want also to build sustainable companies that that are set up to last not to just like burn money and then you know we've seen what happened with WeWork and to some extent Uber as well like the public markets don't necessarily love these business models and they have been set up with a ton of money over a long period of time to 
um, to to sustain this kind of like high burn rate, growth at all costs, uh, culture and business strategy, and it maybe doesn't work for the long term. And so I think people are finally starting to question that. This shift in startup culture coincides with what was going on with Gin Lane. The team found themselves buckling a bit under the stress of running high-stakes contracts with high-end clients. And it was at that time that new habits started taking shape in the personal lives of the team. One of the ways that I managed to deal with those high-stress moments where I couldn't sleep, where I was feeling completely overwhelmed, one of the few times I wasn't stressed was cooking for myself. I have to say I make a pretty special homemade pizza. I can't say though that I've ever connected that Friday night routine to my next business move. To be fair, Nick didn't quite make that connection by himself either, but he knew his inclination to cook was significant somehow. When I brought the cooking idea to the table, it was the articulation of that feeling that Camille was able to grab onto and say, there's something much more here. And what you're feeling with cooking, I'm feeling with other things in my life, and Emmett felt about skateboarding. I remember very well the conversation about cooking, and it was chilly, chilly January, and we were going to get a coffee around the corner, and he was telling me about this, and it sort of brought up a spark in my head of, oh my gosh, I'm going through similar things, because it was us sort of coming out of this moment that was really stressful, and I think I had been going through my own version of sort of seeking things that brought me more joy outside of work um, and more contentment. And so it was really over a series of realizations that I had thought, oh, God, these are all connected. I think that was planting the initial seed of, okay, this notion of making something and doing something with your hands and doing an activity that sort of brings you to the present moment is really powerful for you. And wow, that's something that's been really powerful for me as well. And then one other thing I remember was that summer I took a trip to Japan and visited this store in Japan called Tokyo Hands. Highly recommended if you've never been. And they call it the Creative Life Store. And I was just in love from the minute I set foot in there. They had their mission statement up on the wall in Japanese and English so I could read it and said the creative life store. We exist to help people have a creative life. And each floor of this store, I think there were like nine floors, gives you a, a hint at how to do that. And so one floor would be, you know, travel. One floor would be uh, hobbies like science-related hobbies. One floor was stationary. One floor was cleaning supplies. And one floor was pet supplies. And... There was something about this store that was so simple, it felt like almost like a target. But the fact that these were all organized around this larger mission that was so similar to what Nick and I had been talking about, it just lit this spark in me of going like, oh my God, we need to create the American version of this. I think that was 2016. I was just thinking about, okay, I think that our culture could really use this. How do we do that? And cooking just felt like one of those things that could be a spark, but there's many, many other ways to, to bring that about. One idea was, let's build a cooking brand, and the other was, let's build a multi-brand consumer goods company. Over the next three to six months, the dots began to align and take shape to form an entirely new venture, Pattern Brands. So Pattern is a family of brands with a collective goal of helping our generation enjoy daily life. And each of those brands offers consumers products and guidance towards one area of their life to learn a new habit or routine. 
Pattern is a company more representative of Emmett, Nick and Camille's vision and their wants in terms of evolving their careers. You know, from the inside, I don't think we felt or we feel like we were doing something as significant as we wanted to do. And I think that while we were a really great agency, I think that there were way more significant hangs in all of us in terms of what we wanted to do with our professional careers. And by the end of Gin Lane, we were so proud of what we'd done, but felt like the minor leagues to the major leagues that we were entering with Pattern. But how do you tell a company full of staff working for a highly successful branding agency that the plan is to completely shut down that business and start building a new one? There was a moment where we talked as a management team of Gin Lane together where I could kind of tell that a lot of our people, we weren't giving them the career growth, the opportunities, the reasons to stay together. And at that time, it even for me personally, right, I, I didn't want to continue running an agency again and again doing the same types of projects. And I think there was this element of mastery that then translated into a continuation of building something ourselves. How did you first share that idea with the team? You know, sometimes where you need to go away and do something on your own for a couple of weeks before you can express it. And other times you come with a, a bit of an idea and you, and you just see what happens. This was a thing where I went away and thought deeply for a few weeks and came back with, here's what I have and how I'm thinking about the world. I asked Camille about how the journey to closing down Gin Lane and ramping up work on Pattern played out. It's hard to separate them because it was always this sort of, they were all happening at, at once. I think that was all kind of bubbling up and we kept having these realizations. So I was thinking about it more and more, but there was also the business and strategic end of, also thinking about, okay, how do we actually do this as a company? And so it was sort of in parallel and weaving in and out of, okay, but what type of model could this be? And based on what we've seen in the market, how could we kind of bring that to life? So it was a very organic process. And like, how long ago did you really start to focus on creating the brand behind Pattern? It was really October of 2018 where at least our founding team started to transition over our time and really start to focus on it during the day. I mean, we had always kind of noodled on it off hours, but that was when we made a conscious decision to split our time between that and agency work and really start to lay the foundations. And so it was October, we were starting to think, okay, what is this brand really going to be? And so, you know, went through several iterations of it coming to life and articulating it. One of the hallmarks of the new company, Pattern Brands, is the tagline slash guiding principle, enjoy daily life. I asked Camille where that idea came from. So for a while, I didn't have a brand essence yet, but it was sort of circling around those notions. And, you know, when you're trying to figure these out, you always run it by family, run it by friends, run it by, you know, everybody at the company and, and just beat it up that's what makes the best work. And I just kept getting pushback that creativity was sort of this, not alienating, but I, th I think not everyone relates to creativity. You know, people find it a bit intimidating and find making things intimidating, which I understand. I, I certainly have my own version of that. It feels like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not an artist. How could I take a photograph? That's good. You always think about whether it's good or not. And so then it took a couple, I would say like probably two months of just writing again and again and again, 
what is this? What is this? And it, it just was about wind tunneling it to get to the root of it. And getting to the root of it was really just these moments where your mind is present and you feel nothing but enjoyment. And so I remember I was on a plane journaling and I just kept writing the word joy over and over again. But then it was like joys, like this thing that's finite. When you enjoy something, your, your enjoyment is like a constant state of being your it's ongoing it's it's the true nature of presence in and of itself I wrote, like enjoy life and i was noodling on that for a while and then it was like enjoy life like that's so lofty and it's about fulfillment that could be a religion so how do you anchor it and bring it down to the ground and so then i just tried the word daily in there and then it stuck and it didn't it, it didn't feel like an aha moment immediately it was like okay i think this is it and we beat it up again and beat it up again. And it took some time, but then after a while, it was like, yeah, yeah, oh my God, that's it. Okay, great. And it's only when I think we really felt clear about the problem we were solving in conjunction with those words that it felt like we had nailed it. You know, I didn't know what it was, but I knew there was something there. And that's all I kept saying was, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but if we look back, 5, 10, 15, 20 years at this moment, it will be so clear there's just this nexus of talent, business, opportunity that's not normal. And then when Emmett talks about this nexus, it's true. Luck is just kind of showing up at the right place over and over until, you know, kind of lightning strikes. What was happening as all of these other stars were aligning was the rise of direct-to-consumer businesses. I mean, before you had Costco's and Target's and Walmart's, you had all these different mom and pop shops set up in towns and villages and cities. And the whole idea was that manufacturers could build their products and then have their own store where they sell their products. You may remember that voice from episode one, Nick Sharma, direct consumer strategist and consultant. He's back to give us a brief background on why we've seen a rise of direct to consumer businesses what happened was you had this interjection by these bigger companies like the Costco's and the Walmart's and the Target's where they wanted to house multiple brands and make it more efficient for the consumers to come and shop. And so what they did is they started to buy products from these manufacturers and they would take over the second half of things, which included marketing, sales, distribution, and anything related to the consumer. The problem was that these brands or the, the companies that were making these products had no idea who their consumers were. And when consumers would have problems, the best they could do is make a return. And with the influx of technology and communication and transparency, it just became obvious that consumers wanted to be able to speak to these brands directly. And we saw that as social media started to get bigger and bigger. And as that started to get bigger and there was a demand from consumers who wanted to speak closer with brands, and brands wanted to better understand who their consumers are, there was this birth of this idea of direct-to-consumer brands where brands can sell directly to the consumer. They can cut out the middleman, including everything from storing and warehousing with the targets of the world to paying for shelf space to paying for promotions. Everything there got cut out, and the idea was that because all those fees and those costs are being eliminated to the manufacturers, these brands could now sell directly to consumers. Have a better Nick goes on to explain the macro and micro benefits of direct-to-consumer business. Convenience, better customer service, better product development, better feedback loops to the brands, 
improve customer experience. For example, when Buffy launched their comforter, they were known as a comforter company. Today, they're known as a sustainability company because what they heard from feedback coming from the first comforter helped them develop everything else that they built. I think, um, well, what you get with direct-to-consumer that you didn't otherwise get at retailers is, and even just bigger companies in general, is you don't get any kind of reason as to why a consumer is buying or engaging with a brand. You know, if you go to if you go to Target and you look at detergents, you just see detergents and usually pick by flavor or price or scent. Whereas with direct to consumer brands, you decide between Roman and Hims based on whichever story you gravitate more toward. The more aligned a brand is with their consumer, the more likely they are to sell and have a higher lifetime value with that consumer. And the more likely that consumer then starts to love the brand and then become an advocate, which then becomes another sales channel. And so as a byproduct of all that, consumers love brands and brands realize that they need to be loved by consumers. So if you go through our story, right, all these great new companies that we've been part of that we believe are incredible were built in this time period when new consumer, new technology came to life. I think over the time period since then, it's got easier and easier to build a new company, right? So you can now just launch a company on Instagram and sell stuff to the consumer. It's way more easy to get a product developed in China than ever before. And what it's led to is that every company, every category now has 10, 20 companies that start there where there's, there's just very little differentiation. And you know, for us as consumers, when we look at our social media or when we're on the subway, it's kind of like a sea of sameness. There's no real differentiation now between those companies. And a lot of those companies aren't being built with a real authentic mission. They're just being built to sell some products to consumers. What excites you about the concept of direct-to-consumer? And why do you think in the last five to 10 years, we've seen so many direct consumer brands launch and almost kind of take over markets? Yeah, I think two things happened, right? A generation has come to life with their own set of values. I think a lot about when my parents were born, and it's the same in the UK as in the US. Have you, have you had your soup today? They were born in the 50s and 60s, right, where suddenly there were interstates across America, motorways across the UK, mass availability of any product to anyone. And big companies like Procter & Gamble, Campbell's Soup, all these like behemoths of consumer goods were built during that time where they were able to offer all of these amazing products to everyone, which wasn't the case 10 years before. Let your family enjoy the mmm good flavors of Campbell's 21 Kinds in bowlfuls of Get Up and Go. Have you had your soup today? I think what happened in the early 2010s was the development of a new set of brands which mirrored a new set of values that kind of our generation has been brought up with, right? Where we're not happy just to have like some tasty food. We want to know that it's been made well and it's good for the world and it's built sustainably right? We want to know that there are people who we value and our friends value the same brands as us, right? With the invention of social media. Nick says, rightly so, the culture around brands and consumers has evolved. But it's worth thinking about the obvious game changer, technology, and how that's changed consumer habits. 
which inevitably have also changed consumer expectations. You know, rewind 20 years ago, it'd be nearly impossible for an individual to build a new brand because how would you reach the consumer? You'd need to go and negotiate with, you know, Walmart. And unless you have massive volumes, they'd be like, no, we're not taking you. But in 2010, you could build a website and reach the entire of America. And I think there's combinations of those opening up of channels to consumers through technology, along with this different value set, allowed this whole new wave of brands to be built for our generation, which I just think are going to slowly take over America. I won't be surprised if a lot of the brands that we knew in our childhood won't exist in 20 years' time because they were built under an old business model with a completely different set of values that we believe in as a generation. Now, when Emmett, Nick and Camille carved out the identity for Pattern, they also decided to reimagine the D2C model. You know, my mom watercolor painted all the visuals for Pattern. I don't think it looks like you know, a VC AI backed, you know, best practices playbook. It feels personable and it's relatable and the messaging and just being accessible. And, you know, I think you can, you can let your guard down in intimate settings, right? And so I'll go back to Hello Alfred, Sweetgreen, you know, Dia and Co. We tried to create brands that felt personable, that would do things that people weren't really doing at the time. So Sweetgreen, um, they had, you know, when we worked with them, they were mostly really just in the D.C. area before they were even in New York or anywhere else. And we went down there a bunch and got to learn, you know, how they were running their 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 stores, how they were making salads. And we worked, you know, actually behind the scenes for a little bit, just method actor immersing ourselves. To build the sweet green brand and digital experience, they needed to try and figure out what makes the company so special and how they can translate that to the digital world. Emmett explained that their secret to success was that they had a sort of ecosystem where the customer is known and is not anonymous. You know, again, when we started with the startups, Warby, Bonobos, everything, those guys, like all of us from different ways were trying to create brands and businesses that acknowledged users and, you know, felt like, uh, oh, this is not a big corp that's just run by a, a bunch of data siloed machines, you know, and some faceless organization. It's like, people that I feel an affinity to and relate to. I think that's what's been so successful for a lot of these consumer-first brands. And, you know, we learned a lot from those. And I think for pattern equal parts, the brands we're working with, um, we really want to have stuff feel touched by hand. We want to acknowledge who people are. The whole thing we've been saying for pattern is, you know, direct with consumer versus direct to consumer, which means we're looking to more have a conversation and build a relationship with each customer versus just selling someone something, which is somewhat of a one-lane kind of conversation. Could you tell me a little bit about your direct-with-consumer approach and why you think that's the future for consumer brands? So there was a time when you could go to the store and get advice and know who you're buying from. And you don't just have to buy a product and rely on the brand on that product. You could, you know, get guidance from it. And, you know, retail has gone through many iterations in in the 20th century where, you know, there's, I think of it as like bundling and unbundling from bundling of, you know, the department stores and big box retailers. And those times became very impersonal relationships with the consumer because a brand was just on a shelf and it had to sort of scream at the consumer to buy it because the point of sale was coming through the retailer. 
And then you had times where, you know, the unbundling happened and a brand sort of owned its own footprint in a store and could convey, hey, we're the retailer, we're the manufacturer, and we're the brand, so you can interact with us directly. But there were still times of that being very impersonal because to have a footprint physically in retail is very expensive and tough to scale. And so then you saw the rise of the sort of digital native vertical brands, which I think are are definitely the root of this and the beginning of, you know, having a relationship again with the consumer. But, you know, still, we believe you can take it further of not just selling a product and not just selling a brand, but truly knowing your consumer and having relationships with them and doing that through products and guidance. Um, and luckily, things like, you know, social media can help us connect with them directly. But how do we you know, really listen to them and what they want and what they need and provide that to them. And it's not just a transaction. It's it's truly a relationship over time. So Patton wants to be an updated version of the mom and pop shop for the digital age, where the relationship is with the brand rather than the owner. But still, the intimacy is there. At this stage, everything seemed to be coming together for the team. They were shifting their energy to Patton they were closing down Gin Lane. But no transition in business is smooth sailing, no matter how much you plan. With this new direction slash ambition came many challenges. In our next episode, we'll hear how the team took Patton to market and what transpired on launch day. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with more soon.